Please join me for a prayer of illumination prior to our scripture reading on page 12. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear these words from Matthew 18, 15 through 22. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. The word of the Lord. A headline in the New York Times caught my attention this week. Residents' right to be rude upheld by Massachusetts Supreme Court. In a ruling, the Massachusetts Supreme Court determined that residents of the town of Southboro, Massachusetts have a basic liberty established by the Founding Fathers, the right to be rude at public meetings. This case arose uh, from a town board meeting in 2018 when a resident sharply criticized uh, the board members at the meeting. Some say she was rather rude. And then she was threatened with removal from the meeting on the basis of a civility code for public comments, which required respectful and courteous discourse, free of rude, personal, or slanderous remarks. In response, the Supreme Court struck down the civility code, and in their ruling, the justices said, although civility can and should be encouraged in political discourse, it cannot be required. As we might expect, uh, the response to this uh, Supreme Court decision has been divided. Uh, some see it as an affirmation of free speech in the First Amendment, while others are worried about discouraging citizens from participating in public meetings that might be dominated by a few vocal individuals whose goal is to be disruptive or rude. It appears that conflict is with us to, to stay. I don't think this uh, is a surprise to Jesus. In our text today, Jesus prepares his disciples for conflict by teaching them how to deal with it. But he expects them to deal with it in a way that's different uh, from what we so often experience in this world. The conflict that he describes is not in the world at large, uh, or between even church members and outsiders, he teaches his disciples to expect conflict 
even among themselves. He says, if your brother sins against you. This is a a text about family fights uh, within the people of God. But it's also about how, when those fights happen, uh, Christians uh, can be equipped to respond in ways that move towards healing and, and reconciliation. Jesus teaches us three things here that are necessary to navigate conflict. First is a a commitment to peacemaking. Jesus leaves no room for overlooking a wrong or or brushing it aside. It's something he says that must be dealt with. Second is the role of community. For, For Jesus, Christian community has an essential role to play in resolving conflict. And third is the necessity of forgiveness. Jesus' vision for forgiveness is radical and and deeply challenging. So first, let's talk about the commitment to to peacemaking. I have to admit that at first, I didn't think about peacemaking uh, in relationship to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. What Jesus talks about here, going to someone who has wronged you to tell them their fault, uh, wouldn't seem to be about peacemaking, but more about conflict-making. But the theologian Stanley Hauerwas makes a point in an essay on this chapter uh, that conflict and peacemaking are not at all incompatible. In order to make peace, Hauerwas says, we must be willing to enter into conflict. About Matthew 18, he writes this. Jesus does not say, if you have a grievance, you might think about confronting the one you believe is wrong to you. The text is much stronger than that. It says, if you have a grievance, you must, you are obligated to, confront the one you believe has sinned against you. You cannot overlook a fault on the presumption that it is better not to disturb the peace. Rather, you must risk stirring the waters, causing disorder, rather than overlook the sin. Such confrontation is at the heart of what it means to be a peacemaker, he says. I think his interpretation here is correct. Our natural tendency is to avoid uncomfortable conversations or to be satisfied with a, a superficial relationship rather than do the hard work of seeking peace, even when it means risk and, and vulnerability. This kind of peacemaking, the hard work of peacemaking, requires honesty and courage. And Jesus' instructions very practically offer us a guide for putting on these virtues in relationships. Both the person initiating a conversation like this and the person who is receiving criticism are challenged to be people who display a certain kind of character. Let's see what's required for each person. For the person initiating the conversation, the value that Jesus holds up is one of direct communication without distancing or triangulation. If you've been hurt by someone else, the easiest thing often to do is just to avoid that person. If you can't avoid them physically, then at the very least you might distance yourself emotionally, cutting them off, uh, not really engage them not give yourself fully to the other person. 
Uh, the other thing that's easy to do is to complain to someone else about what that person has done to you. And, you know, I don't mean getting advice from an objective third party, but, but being content to grumble about someone behind their back. Instead of these patterns of avoidance, Jesus calls us instead to make the deliberate choice to go to the one who has sinned against us. This requires courage because there's risk involved about how you will be received. It also requires honesty because you must be very clear about your perspective on the problem in order to tell the other person their fault. Jesus' instruction that this happened first between the two parties alone shows that he envisions a deliberate process that's not rushed or driven by anger. The goal is clear. It's one of reconciliation, gaining your brother. In this process, there's equally a requirement of honesty and courage from the offender. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The requirement for the one who has sinned is to listen. What does Jesus mean by listen? As he goes on to describe, this is often where the process of reconciliation breaks down. Because to really listen to another person who comes to us with a critique about what we have done wrong is very difficult. To listen actively and deeply requires its own kind of courage as well as honesty. Most of all, honesty with ourselves. Just as we naturally avoid someone who may have hurt us, we naturally avoid facing our own failings. And the, strategy, the strategies by which we avoid ourselves come almost automatically. Defensiveness, blaming, downplaying, excuse-making, counterattacking. These are all ways that we do not listen by minimizing our wrongdoing and avoiding the painful work of repentance. What Jesus commands in verse 15 alone is, is already difficult uh, to take the initiative to go and tell a brother or sister how they may have hurt us. And it would be enough if he stopped there and said, but if he does not listen, uh, you tried and did your best and you never have to see them again. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Jesus has a very clear role uh, for the whole Christian community to, to pursue together a life of reconciliation. Though I don't think his last point about telling it to the church necessarily means, uh, you know, declaring it in a public worship service, but involving representatives of the church, like elders or pastors. In one way or another, a broader community is involved in the process. Once again, Jesus' teaching challenges everyone. The person who isn't listening is challenged with an uncomfortable truth about what they have done. But there's also a challenge, a real challenge for everyone here. They're required to keep trying to reach this brother or sister who is unrepentant. They're not allowed to give up on him. 
This is deeply challenging to the individualism of our day, where it's all too easy uh, when we've been hurt or we've been confronted uh, to simply find a new community or, or a new church if, if the one we are in is making us uncomfortable. As the authors uh, Christopher Hertz and Christine Pohl say in their book, Friendship at the Margins, a willingness to put down roots in a particular place and with a particular group of people provides a setting where over time we are forced to depend on God's grace as we work through interpersonal issues and go deeper in the Christian life. Such stability is a challenge to our contemporary tendencies towards self-serving notions of pilgrimage or journey that allow us to pick up and leave when things get difficult. Jesus envisions here a difficult kind of Christian community, something very different from what we often experience. In this kind of community, we, we build relationships with friends who will speak the truth to us and who will even come and tell us our faults when we've done wrong. I don't think this kind of Christian community is something that we can cultivate through uh, a once a week interaction on Sunday mornings. And it's for this reason I think that our, our ministry, our, our household group ministry here at Geneva is such an important part of what makes us a Geneva Campus Church. Uh, we, we try and cultivate these kinds of friendships through our household groups. So if you're new or, or you're not connected to a group, let me encourage you uh, to check them out. You can go online, you can uh, contact David Cerrone, our, our household group coordinator, and uh, visit a group and, and get connected, or, or we'd love to help you get a new group started. Jesus says that having a community of, of Christian friends and a church are essential to navigating conflicts. If you face a situation in which you've tried to seek reconciliation with someone who refuses to repent, then you need the support and the witness of the church to know how to respond. In verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does he mean here? I don't think he means anything like shunning the person, refusing to have anything to do with them. After all, Jesus interacted with Gentiles. He, he ate with tax collectors. What he means is to let that person be to you as someone who is in badly need of God's grace. In his book, Bold Love, uh, the therapist Dan Allender makes the point that Christians are called to love even our enemies, and so we certainly must love those who have hurt us. But how we love, how we best love each person, depends on their unique needs. And Allender distinguishes between loving an evil person, what the Bible calls a mocker, loving a fool, and loving a normal sinner. And I think this distinction is is quite helpful. Each one needs to be approached with wisdom. Now, someone who is evil has been twisted in such a way that they, they cannot really be trusted, and you best love them 
by setting clear boundaries and consequences and showing them the path of repentance. Uh, a fool is, is not evil, but is someone who is uh, resistant to and, and hates discipline and doesn't learn their lesson, even after repeated experience. Proverbs says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Uh, you best love a fool by helping them to see their folly and to envision the possibility of change. This often means doing a hard work to examine their own hearts to discover how their own woundedness has led them to wound others. Uh, finally, Allender says, most people are just normal sinners, which is to say, we all need grace and none of us have arrived. But when we are invited into relationships of love and mercy, we create a context for sanctification and growth. This brings us to our last point today, the necessity of forgiveness. After hearing Jesus' call to peacemaking and reconciliation, Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Translators are, are unsure whether this uh, phrase here uh, really means 77 times or, or 70 times seven, but his intention is clear. There, there is no limit to forgiveness. Many people today fear that underneath this kind of radical call for forgiveness is a lack of concern for justice. But we've already seen that this isn't the case. Peacemaking often requires that we name injustice and we be honest about sin. But the gospel is what enables us to offer forgiveness in response. As Miroslav Volf says, the, the generous release of a genuine debt is the heart of forgiveness. When someone has wronged you, they have placed themselves in your debt in one way or another, financially, socially, emotionally, spiritually. In response, you can choose to make them pay for what they've done by requiring them to repay you or by withholding from the relationship. Or you can forgive them by renouncing your right to be repaid. The gospel tells us that this is what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. We all have sinned against God by misusing his creation and failing to make him first in our lives by giving him the honor and worship that he deserves. He could have chosen to hold that injustice against us forever, but instead he chose to release us from the debt. This means suffering. On the cross, we see the suffering love of God. He takes upon himself the debt that we owed so that we might receive forgiveness and grace. True forgiveness doesn't minimize or, or mitigate evil, but it offers forgiveness in place of revenge. One of the most powerful stories of forgiveness I've heard comes out of the South African experience of of truth and reconciliation after the years of apartheid there. If uh, you're not familiar with it, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, led by Bishop Desmond Tutu, was designed to bear witness to and to record, and sometimes to grant amnesty to those who had committed crimes under the apartheid system uh, in South Africa. 
And in the year 2000, a, a Canadian Mennonite magazine reported on one of the cases that came before the commission. And, and here's what they wrote. A South African woman stood in an emotionally charged courtroom, listening to white police officers acknowledge the atrocities they had perpetrated in the name of apartheid. Officer Vandebroek acknowledged his responsibility in the death of her son. Along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the others partied while they burned his body, uh, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Vandebroek and others arrived to seize her husband. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, uh, the officer came to fetch the woman. He took her to a wood pile where her husband lay bound, and she was forced to watch as they poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed his body. The last words she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now Vandebroek stood before her, stood before her awaiting judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her what she wanted. I want three things, she said calmly. I want Mr. Vandebroek to take me to the, to the place where they burned my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vandebroek took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend the day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vandebroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like someone to lead me to where he is seated so I can embrace him and he can know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vandebroek fainted, overwhelmed. There are many wrongs that can never be put right on this side of the new creation. Jesus doesn't promise that when you go to a brother or sister with a forgiving heart that everything will be resolved and there will be, there will be a, a tidy bow to place on top. What he does promise is that when you forgive, you bear witness to his own forgiving love. Where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, there am I among them. In this way, as the church of Jesus Christ, we place the cross at the center of our life together, and we bear witness, not to our forgiveness, but to the forgiveness of God. The God who enables us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace, uh, for your love revealed to us in Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to turn away from our self-centeredness and to rest in him today. To know that you have reconciled us to yourself and you have made us a reconciling community for one another. Would you transform us by your love so that we might be the people that you call us to be in all our relationships, in interactions, in our witness to the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.